ladies and gentlemen, we are about to start our next table reading, and I feel I should warn you that this podcast is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. And with that, please take your seats, for the veil is lifting, and the table read is about to begin. Ladies and gentlemen, I humbly welcome you to another edition of The Table Reading because I didn't say it on last episode since that was recorded before 2021. Happy New Year. I hope you're all safe and well in such strange times. And as you may be aware by now, if you're not, we always start these episodes with a strange fact and we end on one as well. So our beginning fact is to let you know that a star went missing. For nearly two decades, astronomers studied a star in a galaxy 75 million light years away but they looked at latest observations and realized they couldn't find it anymore. They think it might be something to do with it collapsing into a black hole uh, without first exploding to a supernova, or maybe, just maybe, something out there is taking all the stars. We just don't know. My guest today is someone who has definitely been keeping my attention in uh, over the No Sleep podcast, uh, especially with quarantine. He has been featured on there more times than I think I've seen anyone to date, and for very, very good reason. He is a seasoned writer with several books out, several story collections, and a lot of miles under his belt in the best way possible. His name is Marcus Demanda. Marcus, how are we doing? I'm doing well. Happy New Year, TJ. How are you? Happy New Year. I'm good. I'm good. You know what? We're we're alive. We're well, and we uh, we get to talk about you know the things that we're passionate about. What what better gift is there, really? You got to hold on to what makes you happy. Yeah, that's right, man. I have to tell you, I was listening to uh, Honk if you're hungry today. And <laughs> that was some messed up stuff, mm. man. I loved it. There was some really visceral, awful horror in there. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> tasteless. I loved it a lot. I wrote that purely because I I think it's really important to go out of your comfort zone. Um, I think every writer has markers and traits, and we, we get really used to doing certain things in a certain way. Um, you know, whether it's because we're inspired by certain people or just the way we kind of create things. And I realized I'd never done gross out horror like to that degree. And I was just like... You know when you wake up one day and you're like, I want to piss oh. someone off today. Like, I just want to do something that creates a strong reaction. Like, I love making people scared and sad. And but I was like, you know what? I want to really mess someone up. And so, Honk of Younger World. I was also really hungry. Really hungry. I was um, I was super sick. And I, I couldn't key, uh, key any food down. And um, my friends will, will, tell, will tell anyone, I am really bad for forgetting to eat. <laughs> I will work and work and work. And they'll be like... Oh shit, it's been 13 hours. I should probably eat something. And um, I really wanted a smash burger. And so it was the summer, it was that barbecue y kind of feel, even though it's quarantine, you know. And I was like, I wanna I wanna sure. get that nostalgic feel, <laughs> yeah. but also twist it, make it horrible. <laughs> well, you know, listen, if you were just like, I wanna do something really gross just once, all I can say is well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you've got your own sort of like um You've got your own styles and, and you've got your own like markers in yourself. And I think like people now are in a place where they can tell when a Marcus Demanda story is coming. Perhaps not necessarily in the style of horror, but there, there's certain things that you'll do in your storytelling, your characterizations that have, uh, I think people, especially when you look at the, you know, the No Sleep fan group, people know when a story of yours is coming up. And they get really excited for it now. I mean, your features have been, you know, yeah. you, you joined a long time ago. Right? Like when, I, when you sent me the contributions list and I was doing my homework, I didn't realize you started so far back in, in you know, season four. And yet 
it's it's kind of insane. Like you know, you're still being you know featured in today. I mean, you were in season uh, season fifteen, episode ten recently, but like you've you've been all over. Yeah. Oh my all gosh, over. that was that was a lot of fun. And mm. I have to tell you, uh, when I started doing this, I wasn't really well informed about what it was. Uh, mm. uh, there's more to tell there, but um, <laughs> but as I got comfortable with it, things changed and things opened for me. But you were talking to um, Will Dolphin about the um, it's real, even if it isn't motif of, mm-hmm. of the no sleep subreddit. And uh, so the first two stories right. that I wrote, I made sure to keep everything supernatural out of it. And those were both stories that mm. could conceivably mm. happen in the real world. And then I started listening much more closely to the podcast as my stories were produced. Mm. I realized that the gloves were off. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so. it's, I think that's like kind of like, again, it's adaptation, though. Like, horror is not in the place that it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Like, I think, I think every genre moves very quickly, but I think a lot of people forget how much of a needle mover horror has been. Because when you're only exposed to, like, you know, the, the slasher movies and, and the snuff films and, and you know, that, that era of that movie, you don't think about the, what's beneath the surface. And I think it's very easy to forget that horror as a genre, I think is one of the, one of the most popular literary genres there is. And, and as such, it's going to go through a quicker revolutionary process um, than I think, you know, the rest of it. And also it's, it's, it's dictated by what's going on. You know, when the world is shit, you want to kind of respond to that. Absolutely. Uh, and also just, just uh, real quick on the whole slasher thing. I just want to bring up slightly in its defense, the 1978 John Carpenter film Halloween. Oh, man. Um, yeah, and, but, and, and the thing is, n- nothing like it had been done before. When the first Friday the 13th movie came out, that was its own thing. But uh, the second and the third were following hot on the heels of what Halloween 1 and Halloween 2 were doing. Well, that's the thing. Like, Carpenter's a genius. Like, I've said in this podcast, he is one of, if not the greatest sort of directors I've, I've, ever, I've ever seen. Um, you know, the thing is probably my favorite, you know, horror movie of all time. That that that's absolute. That's that's a tremendous movie. The the scene where yeah. the um, electro defibrillator goes through the man's chest. <laughs> and, oh, uh, it's 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 that. And when they when they're tying them up, and like he he starts yeah. shifting while they're tied up, and it's this. He creates really weird, subtle horror in the face of you know. Obviously, you've got the almost like um the immediate ah, it's spooky, disgusting, you know, alien parasite monster. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but you also can't get away. You, this is cabin fever times 100. Yeah, that was, uh, I've always been a Carpenter fan, but when I was a little kid, I had a I had a keyboard and I used to try to emulate making my own John Carpenter themes on it and stuff like that. Oh, you know, I used to, dude, uh, that's so cool. I, I, I used to play uh, little bits of creepy soundtrack from records and read my stories into a tape recorder when I was a mm. child. I only wish I had those cassette <laughs> tapes with me now. Oh, that's um, so cool. Well, I guess like that, that kind of, you know, uh, in, a, in a round trip sort of way, you've been doing this for a very, very long time. That's very clear. But where did it all start for you? Well, when I was nine years old, I wrote my first story that teachers didn't make me write. Uh, I wrote a story called uh, Mighty War <laughs> of the Dragons, and it was wildly okay. stupid. You I still, still have it, though. You still um, remember the name. I, I, I still have it. I have a satchel oh, of almost cool. everything I've ever written. Uh, actually, the satchel is only yeah. the stuff I wrote when I was a child because everything I've ever written would be wouldn't fit. But I was I was at least <laughs> wise enough to keep all that stuff. My my first stories I wrote pencil and paper like any kid would, and mm. and I had garbage ties, you know, um, glad bag garbage ties uh, that I used <laughs> to loop through the holes and hold it together like a book, and I drew the covers on them. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> you know, like I think that ad hoc aspect is something that um. 
I remember from my own childhood in the 90s, like just the DIY aspect of getting things made yourself. It's so nice. It's It, it brings this real sense of like, you made this, you created this. It's, it's your like world. Yeah, almost. absolutely. And in fact, when I was a kid, knowing that no one else would do it for me, but still wanting it, that was the only way mm. it was going to happen. And I was proud of that stuff. I, I even put blurbs on it from my friends like they were newspaper reviewers or something. In quotes and everything. Uh, you know, it was kind of <laughs> pathetic, but. Did your um did your environment like the time you were raised in like did that inspire a lot of your writing at the time? Well, I grew up in the heyday of Stephen King. When I was uh, thirteen years old, Christine came out. When I was sixteen years old, it came out. I I don't know what to say beyond that except that Stephen King is revered now, but then he was a rock mm. star. It wasn't yeah. just like literary people took note of him or horror people took note of him. At that time, Stephen King was as big as as a popular music everyone band. was paying attention yeah he commanded absolutely. the world and yes that- he absolutely did and he was coming out with two three books a day and, mm. and that wasn't even counting the pen name we didn't know about until later <laughs> you know so uh you know that uh he got my attention as a teenager and that's when i stopped writing about big hulky men and swords and dragons and started <laughs> talking about suburbs places like i lived in mm. and awful things happening in in them i i have to tell you yeah. But even among my peers at the time, and I wasn't aware of it then, but now having students and reading what they write, I know I wasn't very good. The 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 thing that, that, that got me anywhere is the fact that I never stopped doing it. Yeah, persistence is so, so important. I um I mean I, I used to be an English teacher and I know some of my old students actually listen to this podcast. And uh I think like teaching has has definitely evolved and changed since I was in school. You know, everyone has this sort of tale of like, they always remember the bad teachers and the good teachers. I don't have any recollection of any good teachers as, as, a, as, a, as a teenager. And I'm my English teacher in particular was a really awful, awful human being. But like, none of them ever stopped me writing. They never said, oh, you shouldn't write. They always very, you know, blase about it. But when I looked at my kids' work, because I obviously taught English, and some of it would be terrible. And I worked with um, children who were in one of the most impoverished areas in the United Kingdom. Really high uh, crime rate, really high um, issues with with um, parenting, like single parent areas, and and sort of forth. And I used to, you know, see that level of literacy, but you'd see the effort. And and I didn't care yeah. that they didn't spell words properly or it wasn't ri- written neatly because the passion was there. And I think the biggest in responsibility an educator has, at least in my opinion is you have that that child or that person's trust in your hands and you you can make or break them and they will remember it they will pretend that they don't especially when they're teenagers they'll act like it's not a big deal and they don't care about you but they will never forget that 30 40 years on and if you tell them their work is gonna be something or it's good and you encourage them you could set them on that different path and i think like it's something a lot of people don't realize about the, the well, you know when i when i when i read my students writings i have uh, two categories of feedback and one is, this is what I love. Mm. And the other is, here's what you should do. There's no criticism. There, there is praise yeah. and instruction. And criticism doesn't enter into mm. it. Mm. You, you know, you could tell a kid, your spelling's horrible. Or you could say, watch for these corrections. You, you can tell them what to do or you can beat them down. And I'm very mindful of that, especially since my kids, yeah. the students I teach, are very young. I, I teach 11 and 12-year-olds. And where, where yeah. I teach, that's the beginning of middle school. Very often, it's the first time those kids have changed schools. It's the first time they're going from one teacher to another, mm. as opposed to primary school. 
you know, and I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm very lucky to have that group because yeah. they come wanting help, wanting guidance. They're scared. They'll jump through hoops of fire for you. And I think, uh, mm. for me, one of my most important tasks yeah. in that regard is not to, uh, not to make them hate reading and writing. Absolutely. And that is an uphill struggle because a lot of kids don't like writing. You know, uh, they, they do find it to be difficult. They do. I mean, I, I mean, I'll, I'll put my hand in there and say like the moment I could start doing digital writing, I did. I write still occasionally, my, you know, I still know how to obviously write cursive and I, you know, I do legal documents, but I despise writing with my hands because, and it's not because I don't uh, enjoy sure. the process, but my hands cramp up really quickly. And I'm just like, ah, f-. you know, I can write you, you give me a computer and time and I'll do 5,000 words in a couple of hours, but you get, you give me, you give me a pen and paper and I'll do a page and a half and I'll be like, yes. well, I want more <laughs> to do. But I think, yeah, it, it's definitely really really important for, for those kids because you don't want them to be disenfranchised. You don't want them to, to hate literature. You know, I think there's this really weird conservative perception that by nurturing kids, we're babying them or we're not preparing them or the whole, what's that bullshit, the participation trophy bullshit, whatever they spout out. And it's like, just because as an adult, you're, you had a bad experience and you're angry does not mean you do that to children, especially when they're young adults, because I think the biggest mistake that people make is, yes, you should always treat a person with respect. A little person should always be spoken to in a way you would want to be spoken to. Absolutely. You should treat them like adults to a degree, but you also can't give them feedback like adults because they're not adults because they don't have the brain chemical uh, makeup of adults. And, and if, if you do that, it's going to fuck them up. Also, also, if you want kids to be good people, you should be good to them. That's basically, in a, in a nutshell, absolutely. You don't get anywhere by being bitter and angry, but unfortunately... You gotta, you know, you the, gotta model, yeah. model the behavior you want to see. And so, you know, one of the things about this whole COVID situation is um, mm-hmm. I've got kids virtually right now. And the good news is I don't really have a lot of discipline problems. I don't generally, but I have even fewer now. Everyone's so lonely. And they uh, just want to talk and connect. You know, yeah. It's an important time. It's an important time to set the right example. Mm-hmm. Uh, having, se- having said all of that, my characters and my stories really don't <laughs> obey those values. Right. Um, but that's interesting. Very... Why would you want to write the, the norm? I mean, I've said this on this show so many times. When it comes to diversification, that doesn't just mean an, uh, you know, gender, uh, sexual orientation, and, and ethnicity and race. It also means character alignment. Why would you want to write all good people especially in horror that's not interesting no not you know? at all no conflict no story and yeah. uh and you always you always want the reader in a horror story to feel at least until you get to the resolution good or bad you want them to feel unsafe uncertain mm. uh, in a story and where you know what the audience wants it's your job as a writer to disobey just enough the genre to surprise them but also to deliver what they want <laughs> Do you think there's a real issue when we talk about John Carpenter and Stephen King and, and other writers, especially in the world we live in now where everyone's interconnected, everyone knows everyone's work, they see their successes, their failures. Do you think there's a real problem with treading the same ground too much now? Uh, not just in horror, but in general art, artistry creation, because you'll always find new things to do. And I think, in my opinion, it's, it's fine to do the same things that people are doing if you're doing it in a new way. But do you worry, as someone who's written as much as you have and the career you've had, that there will be a point where other people are going to start treading demand the ground rather than treading you know, more of their own ground? Well, let me just say that I haven't, it's never been a point of concern with me. It hasn't mm. really come up, but on the one hand, I don't want my stuff just hijacked. But on the other hand, <laughs> uh, you know, plagiarism is the sincerest form of flattery. I, As they say. I, I, I don't really know. You know, no one has ever uh, written me fan fiction for Summer or for My Thousand Ghosts. 
or anything like that that I'm aware of. But mm. but I will tell you that I have heard even stories on the show where I thought that's a hell of a lot like something that I did. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of subconscious like borrowing. Like I as a rule, I don't listen or or read a lot of other people's work now if I can help it. I do for the show and I do for like out of general interest, but because I write myself and that is, you know, my bread and yeah. butter, I'm very careful. So if I know someone writes dark, fantastical horror, I'm like, all right, maybe don't read too much of theirs. Cause I, I it's almost like you subconsciously borrow from it and you don't want to do that. But I guess like for you, when you were younger, when, when King was a rock star, bring this back, were you, were you imitating his yeah. style, like learning from his style, I should say? Oh, a hundred percent. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> And one of the things about it is, is that it doesn't even have to be Stephen King's horror. I read mm. The Body from the book Different Seasons, the Such novella that book. later became Stand By Me. Yeah. And the relationship of those four boys, that childhood loyalty, that fierce friendship has translated mm. probably into 50, 60 percent of what I do. You know, I write about kids a yeah. lot and I write about the confrontation of youth with death a lot. And the guts that Stephen and the honesty that Stephen King came to that with has never stopped resonating with me. I, I really think that the stuff that Stephen King wrote in the late 70s and the early 80s is among the best stuff he's ever done. Now, having said that, I also have really yeah. enjoyed other things like Under the Dome and uh, the JFK time travel book that he did. But that was life. It's, 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 I agree, like, in a sense, I don't write a lot about like, like young kids. Um, I prefer to write about um sort of like um early 20 somethings because i am a 20 something at least for yep. uh you know eight more months and then 30 30 is staring me down oh you're so oh, young i don't feel it <laughs> i heard yourself i heard you call yourself old <laughs> on your own show you're not allowed to do that with me whippers uh, i think it's i think it's you it's it's it, you're only as uh, as old as you feel and and i feel like methuselah some days but Definitely, like, um, you know, 30 is not going to be as bad as I think is. I think it's just, like, we're, we've got this perception in, in culture that life ends at 30 or, or like, your youth ends and, you know, bullshit. Oh, listen. <laughs> uh, hold on a second. Hold on. I 30 was easy. 29 was murder. That's why I am now. Because I yeah. was scared of yeah. it. I, I was terrified of it at 29. Okay. By the time I got to 30, I, I reached healthy resignation. Yeah. And I'm still not convinced that I'm beyond the maturity of a 12-year-old. Oh, no. And, I, and I, I've kind of like, you know, resigned myself to that. Like I still, you know, in my spare time when I'm editing, I watch cartoons, I play video games. Like I'm never going to stop doing those things. And I think the biggest concern, I wrote this in a character, I think like human concerns, like very innate concerns we have often bleed into our work. And you talked about, you know, you write a lot about children. And one of the ones I did was, was a kid who literally he lashed out and other people because he, he was so afraid of changing as an adult. And one of my, my biggest fears as a kid bizarrely was that i'd one day reach a point where i had a job or a life where video games and anime and and music was no longer a part of it and i was terrified of oh god i was like absolutely terrified and and younger me did not understand that you know the longer you enjoy something the more it's going to become a part of well, your life. hold on a second there too because yeah i'm 50 by the way oh you're looking yeah, for 50 uh, well thank you and when i was uh nine years old i was there for the american debut of the anime star blazers and speed racer and anime was a big part oh. of me growing up too, because the American cartoons at that time were Looney Tunes or Disney or or, the, or whatever. But in Speed Racer, and especially sure. in Star Blazers, there Space wasn't as much variety. There were there was life and death conflict. There was a character you could fall in love with, and he'd be dead the next mm. episode. And the characters would deal with that and mourn from that. And and I remember prior to going to school in fourth grade, you know, one day in 1979. Mm -hmm. 
an episode of Star Blazers where they're looking off the bow of the ship back to planet Earth, and they're about to pass out of transmitter mm. range. And one of the young crew members is talking to his brother who's dying of cancer back on Earth while he's racing off to space to get the cure. And the transmission dies and he can't handle it. Disney wouldn't dare. Uh, um, uh, uh, the Japanese That's culture hard, of what yeah. they would let their kids experience in storytelling no, no. was so much more courageous and daring. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that to some extent endures even mm. in anime now it, it just oh yeah definitely more so i would say it's it's grown i think like there's a, there's a lot more variety and that can be overwhelming so you know i have a i have a friend who used to watch it um in the in the mid to late 90s he he fell out of faith when cowboy bebop was done which is one of the greatest of all time to do it it's to this to this day that storytelling neo noir style they do is just unbeaten it's so good but then he got back into it, and you know he knows about the big popness. He doesn't know, he doesn't know about the little, the sort of under the radar ones. And um, he was really overwhelmed by the choices. And when you have an art medium that's been going for oh my goodness, 70, 75 years now, anime's been going for it's it's only evolved. However it's, long it's, it's only been just going. evolved to reach yeah. that. It, it, it keeps getting better. And and I I've been very open about my love of anime and the way I write my character choices and 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 sort of the action sequences are taken from scenes that I've seen and. I think, again, it's, it's all about where you're inspired from. So beyond King, what else, like, inspired a young Marcus as you were starting to, you know, grow as a writer and, and you become a young man? Like, well, where did you uh, get your inspiration from? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was, uh, a lot of it came from Rebellion. I was brought up in the heavy metal generation, and I had come from private religious school directly into that. <laughs> when I was um, in seventh grade in that private school, I was so sick of it that I was put through expulsion hearings. Mm. And um, my parents invited the principal to my house. Wow. We, we had an in my house conference. And the principal asked me, oh, said, wow. you know, and <laughs> my dad intense. said, you have freedom to answer as long as you do it respectfully and honestly. The principal, the principal asked me, why do you want so badly to get Fair out enough. of this place? And I looked at this man who had berated me, beaten me. And I told him, I said, sir, because of you. And he, and he erupted. He started yelling and screaming at me. And my father eventually pointed to the door and said, get the hell out of my house. I, I thought he said it to me, but he said it to him. And uh, the principal left. He took the hell Good with Good on him. your dad. The uh, first forays into dark fiction, friends banding fiction, followed as I went into eighth grade and then into high school, as I returned mm. to the world, because I didn't know how to do it. Uh, the world of regular school was so different. I mm. was originally very ostracized. I made few friends, but the yeah. friends I made, we were, we were like bunker buddies. Mm you know, just surviving it together. And uh, by the time I was in 10th grade, everything was cool. By the time, the, by the time I was in 12th grade, I was playing in a metal band. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, and, and, and I had, and I had yeah. a large selection of friends. So I, I bounced back nicely, but it took four <laughs> fucking years. That's a long time. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's a long time for a teenager. That is like an eternity yeah. for a teenager, man. You know, first thing I'd say is like, it's really cool of your dad to like stick by you because you hear a lot of these Especially in America, rural America, the religious fundamental schools, the parents will side with the authority figure almost because not because of the hatred of their kid, but because to them, God is number one and, and all this stuff. And so, you know, to hear something like that where your dad literally tells this guy to get the hell out, that, that must have been like a powerful moment for you. It was scary at first because, like I said, at first I thought he was kicking yeah. me out, but that's how uh, deep in the shit I was. The, the thing mm. is, is that I think my parents didn't believe what was going on until they saw it in their living room. They had to watch it happen for themselves. And, um, and I got under his skin. 
it wasn't mm. a plan. And maybe it's a natural talent I have. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it just happened, yeah. It's a yeah. little part of Marcus, it's a little, uh, but, little inherent uh, ability. Those dogs got let out, and as soon as they saw it, both of my parents yeah. were horrified. It wasn't just me that got out. They withdrew my older brother, too. Oh, nice. Um, so so was, was the adjustment, um, when you went when you back to school, like, and you started writing again, obviously, and you, you adjusted through that process. When you, when you left school and, and you started you know, out in the wide world as, as, as a grown man, how much of your writing took front stage? Because a lot of times, and, and I put my hand up here as well, writing falls away when you're a young man because other things take priority, relationships and friends and traveling and, and everything else, but also just, just life, just work. And, and, and unless you have a really good balance, it is so hard to maintain the two together. And a lot of young listeners who hear this show, like I, I kind of reiterate this because I want them to know, like it's okay to fall off that wagon. It's okay to not write for a little while. Like you're always going to have the ability. It sucks when it happens, but life often doesn't yeah. care. You would have seen a lot more of me in season 15 if it weren't for online teaching. I've sure. had to sure. 100% relearn my job and learn a whole lot of things I'm not comfortable with. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time just making sure that I would know the technical stuff I had to know to do this interview correctly. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you did but going back to your question, I had one dry spell when I was in my 30s, it was, though, not in my early adulthood. I had a mm -hmm. dry spell in my 30s when I had about Okay, up, okay. Um, because I worked and wrote all through college. And when I was 19, I had an agent and I had a publishing contract mm. with Doubleday and they told me to do something. They told me to do a rewrite on the second half of the book they were going to publish where I didn't kill a given character that they thought people were going to love. And I refused. Mm. Not only did they drop the deal, but no one would ever read me again mm. for a decade and a half. The, you got blacklisted for, for saying no to a publisher. I got blacklisted for uh, accepting an agreement of publication and then being arrogant and dumb enough and young enough not to do the rewrite they required of me. I would never make that mistake now. Sure, I get that. But blacklisted, though, that's that's like an extreme. Like, I know of a couple of writers that have been blacklisted, and nowadays it's for the more egregious plagiarism or things of that nature. Like, you know, you, you saying no to a publisher's request... Yeah, that's that's you know it, it's not a decision you make now. Yeah, but, I, but to, to to think that that would yeah. ten year ten and a half years sorry um decade and a half excuse me that they wouldn't read your work that's that's fucking insane. Yeah, it was awful. Uh, but I also try to look at it a little bit from their perspective. We said yes to this kid when he was nineteen years old, and he wouldn't come to work. And mm. when I look at the arrogance and hubris of myself at that time, I'll, I'll take that on me. You know, these days if Olivia says sure, look this isn't going to work because of this. I'll just go back to the manuscript and freaking fix it. <laughs> exactly. It's, I mean, like I, I think back to 19, that was when I did the expressionist and that's when the fucking world opened up to me and I would not have been ready for a publishing deal. I would not have been ready at all. Um, or was I 20? I was 20, but like, I would not have been ready. Uh, I was in the middle of university. I was a really, there was a lot going on in my life and I was just really happy to be going out and seeing girls and drinking and, you know, doing the university stuff. And I was, I was the head DJ for like my, sure. my university and I, we had, I had a society, two degrees. So like I, there was no time and I tried to capitalize on it, but like, I think back to them, like, man, I would not have, not have wanted to do that. Like, I think there are some very mature and clever 18, 19 year olds, but I think that's, that's extremely young and you need to go out and fail. You have to go out and fail and get a rejection. Anything like that age, man, that's, that's, that's a terrifying thing. And to think it determines 10 plus years of your career, that's so unfair. 
you know, I appreciate that, but I, I, I just don't want to dwell on it. You know, I have to tell you sure. that um, on balance, I feel very, very lucky because when I was um, in my 40s and I had mm. decided again to go for this, I wrote a story uh, called The Devil in Miss Drake's Class, wrote it as one book. It was too long. And I was playing The Lord of the Rings online with a friend who worked as an editor. And I was just mm -hmm. complaining in the chat about how hard it was to get read and where I'd been and what I'd been through. And she mm. said, well, fuck it. Send it to Evernight. And I did. And, and uh, the lady acquisitions editor, a different person named Christine Klosek Lim, and she said, we don't want to publish this as one book. We want to publish it as three. Will you please divide it in three sections and add enough to make <laughs> each part big enough? And uh, and and I thought and I thought back to the earlier mistake that I made, where I said I oh, the book's man, perfect as cool. it is. No, and and I said yes, ma'am. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's TJ from the future, and I hope you're enjoying this week's table read with Marcus. I know a lot of you are intrigued by the summer series in particular. But before we carry on with the trip down memory lane, I want to just bend your ear for a moment about my sister show, The Writer's Mythos, and our upcoming episode on January 20th. The Writer's Mythos is a bi-weekly scripted deep dive into authors from across history. We look at their lives, triumphs, downfalls, and everything in between. With music by No Sleep Podcast's Brandon Boone, and the voices of our chosen writers performed by voice actors like David Alt, Peter Joseph Lewis, Mick Wingert, Dan Sepula, David Cummings, and more, The Writer's Mythos is sure to be an experience you're bound to not only remember, but be enriched by. So far in 2020, we've covered sci-fi icon Mary Shelley, King of the Macabre Stephen King, feminist icon Angela Carter, manga sensation Junji Ito, childhood nightmare bringer R.L. Stein, gothic powerhouse Edgar Allan Poe, and the man behind Cthulhu himself, H.P. Lovecraft. In our final outing of 2020, I teamed up with Shadows at the Door creator Mark Nixon to cover the pioneer of the modern ghost tale, M.R. James. Mark himself provides the scintillating voice for James, and the superb David Alt read key passages from some of James's best work. It's a veritable feast of the years to be sure, and we didn't stop there. Just recently, we covered the life and times of the man behind the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens. On January 20th, we look at Joe Hill, the son of the greatest modern horror writer and Stephen King, and we focus on some of his own pioneering work, including a ton that I'm sure you'll be very curious by. Find out more by following us on Twitter at Writer's Mythos, and give us a wave, a review, maybe recommend us to your friends. We're always looking to add to the cult. The Writer's Mythos, a production by TJ Lee and David Cummings, releases every other Wednesday. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you may get your podcasts. Links are available in the description, should you wish to go and join the Mythos. Oh, that's awesome. And that, that, that trilogy um, is still available on Amazon, which we'll link below. Uh, Devil's in the Dark, A Devil in the Daylight, and The Devil at Play. Could you, could you run us through like the plot points of you know, what, what this is all about? Sure. For your listeners, the most important thing is, is that this is in the same universe as the Thousand Ghost Stories on the No Sleep Podcast. Okay. This is the story of a young girl named Audrey, mm -hmm. and uh, she tries to kill herself because okay. she has no friends, and the one friend she did have, popular people have invited into their cadre and left her out, and they have encouraged her through cyberbullying to end her own mm -hmm. life, never thinking she would do it. But then sure. online, she actually tries to. And um, what no one suspects mm -hmm. is that the Thousand Ghosts which is a single entity in a single body, but inside that body are the ghosts of a thousand mm. kids who have killed themselves. And they wander the plane 
seeking to uh, move the mm-hmm. line, to let out the one who's been there the longest, and to let in a new one who mm-hmm. kills themselves very recently, and then settle the accounts with the people who made them do it. Okay. And the like a one who's currently system. at the head of the line, the one who's been mm-hmm. there the longest, I like that. Um, whose name is Alistair, sees in Audrey the girl that he loved and the girl she wouldn't love him back. Anyway, from this, a um, 2015 mm. high school drama plays out, whereas Audrey goes through rehabilitation and enters back into the world and only wants to have a normal life. She goes to a new school. She makes new friends. She's making it. But mm-hmm. the kids who have been expelled from school or put in juvenile detention for having mm-hmm. driven her to this decision aren't done okay. with her yet. But the thousand ghosts, silently and in the shadows, are waiting mm. To make her case, that's a hell of a way of you. You sold that really well over the three structures. And you, you, you one of <laughs> one of the quotes I picked up on, which I just love this quote to bits. Um, it's everybody loves the devil until they know him, until they see him for what he really is. And I just think that is like that's your book three, um, open a blur. But my god, it's just such a such a beautiful way of looking at that. Well, thank and, you. Uh, I sure appreciate that. The thing is, is that Alistair, who is in the book, is Jack Maddox because he has to take on a the name of a kid in the modern world, but mm-hmm. he was Alistair back in the story from the No Sleep podcast, as Helen remembered it, and um, mm. he was Alistair also, although he never declares himself as such, and it came out of the rain, and he was in Confessor of the Dead, so that, that's a character, <laughs> and he was in uh, Midnight at the Acid Light Dance, so, I, so he's a character that just pops up, and the Thousand Ghosts just pop up randomly on the No Sleep podcast <laughs> every now and again, and I never tell him when, it, I never tell anybody when he's coming. Thankfully, the yeah. show keeps taking him because Olivia loves this story. She's setup. so good at finding and, good work. Um, she, she's like a diamond in the rough kind of searcher. I gave, when I gave her that selection of stories, we were, you know, you mentioned Honk if you're hungry. She chose, I think, I don't know if I'm allowed to say how many are on this season. Yeah. There's a fair few of me coming in this season. And she wanted Honk if you're hungry really badly. And I was just like, are you sure you want? Because it's going to create some discourse. And she just goes, yeah, I love that it's going to create discourse. Are you kidding? It's a hit, dude. Have you have you been watching the fan group? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, but like, I, I, and I, I was very happy. But um, there's obviously the No Sleep um, discussion subreddit, which is just, they're a delight. Um, because I think some of them listen to this. And, um, you know, they have their opinions. And um, I, I believe we can kill them with kindness. So they're really, really critical. They love you. But they're really critical of like every writer and, and all this. And I, and I went on there. When they read Honky Bunker, they hated it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever been there. Um, and my experience with the subreddit was such that I had to stop going there for yeah. a while. I was getting a lot of I was getting a lot of hate mail. They um, they they're very interesting in the way they are. And like I, I popped on it because I got told about them. You know, they had three separate posts about Honky Be Hungry. Gore is not a story. And and the moment and this is a I guess thing to tell like a teaching lesson for our other writers. When the moment I was really diplomatic and nice. Because I would say I, I represent a few different places, and I was like, I need to be mindful of how I say this. I was like, really polite. I said, oh, you know, I'm sorry I didn't like it, this, this, this. And they took their tail between their legs. Like, the moment I was really polite, they were like, oh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. And it's like, I'm not saying this to any of them listening as a judgment, but, like, they have their opinions. They're allowed to have criticisms. That's that's the world we live in. But um, for any writer, like, it is, if you can't respond in a way that isn't diplomatic, it's probably better to just not, because it will only get no, worse. No, do not feed the yeah. trolls. I, I had... Um... When I was submitting to the subreddit, I posted a story called The House Sitters, which also got on the uh, No Sleep podcast, uh, I think, mm. in season five. And uh, the uh, the House Sitters inspired one... Oh, season six, oh, episode okay. 15. Okay. Just checked. Uh, the uh, <laughs> one, one commenter 
wrote there, and 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 I took this as the narrator, not as me, because of the rules of of no sleep. Sure, sure. He said, "Has anyone ever told you that you're a psycho fuck?" And I answered <laughs> under that, "Yes." Uh, and uh, yeah. and that one word response <laughs> got more upvotes than his question. Um, yeah, that's and that's the thing. They, they, see, no, no sleep. The subreddit is wonderful, and they've they're really they really get into it, and they're really heavy with discussions. The, what I what I was saying was I think with the no sleep discussion podcast discussion they they literally only discuss the podcast episodes they review them basically they're like a community of reviewers well, that would terrify me I can't yeah no that. no do, do not go there if you're ever featured on the podcast anyone listening do not go there they are again they, someone might be listening to this and I don't have any beef for them but they they are ruthless and I'm I've been on the internet long enough where I'm just very polite to people but they are ruthless and also I don't want them to have to hold back whatever if that's, that's a free what it's, it's a free space they've got to have the space to set and, and this is what i was saying you know, to someone you know, I, you know i don't want to be the author to come in and and, no. and be the prima donna the diva and bully them yeah uh, the thing is like we're in a privileged place where we've had the work put out there and people like it and and i don't believe a writer should ever want everyone to write that like the work i welcome anyone who says i don't like tj lee's style of writing or i don't like this like that's absolutely fine i welcome that i also welcome people going i don't think this story is very good because of x y and z like you know i might learn from it i might not I think it's really important people have safe spaces. Really important people have safe spaces. Uh, sure. I've got to be honest with you. I, I know I'll never get it, but I'm always wanting 100% approval. That's, that's a goal. Yeah, it, right? it is. And I, when people say, I don't care what people think, I don't believe them. Uh, <laughs> I, I care very much. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I've been an approval hound since I was, is, since, as long as I can remember. And I listen very carefully to criticism. I don't listen mm. as carefully to hate mail. Uh, sometimes I brood over it and think unhealthy things about it, <laughs> but I pay very special attention sure. to real critique. It's important. It's important to do. I think, like, I'm I'm a pleaser, so like, I you know that's kind of my nature to stew on like certain things and want to do that. But I also, having done this for a decade now, I also know my value, and I know that I am here because of my talents. And and no matter what anyone says, it's very uh, important that you don't go too far on the spectrum. You don't go too far to the to the the degree where you're like, well, you know what, I must be shit. Because not only are you discounting your own abilities, but you're discounting the abilities of your colleagues who may not have made it onto that show or made it to where you are. And, and you know, by saying that you're shit, you're sort of saying, well, my friends obviously can't hit this these margins either. So, like, you, you know, it, it's not what people say you are. Someone might not like you, but like, there are people who think Stephen King is shit. It doesn't mean Stephen King is shit, you know? No, you know, a lot of, uh, most of the critics absolutely destroyed Christine, both as a book as a, and as a movie, mm. uh, also mm -hmm. directed by John Carpenter. And I defy anyone to turn it on and not watch it to the it's a, end. It's a good um, movie. It's a fucking great movie. Like, I was, I watched, um, not Stephen King, I watched Battle Royale last night, which is one of the most important mm -hmm. films I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and, and an even better book, by the way. Oh, I, I have no doubt. It's something I'm going to put on the list, because what's really strange is uh, one of the first places I ever started writing, I think I've ever told this, was on a, sub on a place called Newgrounds. And I, I used to write on a BBS board there, like a forum board. I, I, cause I'd created some Flash games and stuff. I was about 15. And um, they were doing a Battle Royale story, and you could put your username in there, and then we would write parts of it together as a writing thing. And it got loads of attention. And like I was like this high schooler just losing my fucking mind. I was like, this idea is brilliant. And then I went and watched the movie, and I was like, oh my god. Like, you know, and there are a lot of people who hate that movie, who think that movie is just awful. So I think it's perspective. Well, if yeah. I can just toss this in there, I, I think that the greatest example of successful plagiarism in the history of modern literature mm -hmm. is The Hunger Games, because <laughs> it is Battle Royale. Yes, uh, yes, it really one, is. 100% Battle Royale. 
and just stolen wholesale. It's like family-friendly Battle Royale, but but also extended out to how many books? I've, I've never seen The Hunger Games, never read The Hunger Games. Is it five books? It's three books? books. It's one book and then two repeats. And it is the most overrated piece of shit. Um, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> the, the, shit. You know. Just a big old fuck you to Suzanne yeah, Collins right Well, now, huh? absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, and I'm sorry, Suzanne, but, uh, all you, all you did was, uh, take somebody else's story and Americanize it and then PG-13 eyes it. And that's all that it is. Now we were talking about like fan fiction and taking somebody else's idea before, but, uh, she made a franchise out of it. Uh, You feel about her the way I feel about E.L. James. So it's fine. Um, (laughs) E.L. James has damaged various communities we shan't go into detail but like she has damaged that and she's she's i would definitely say a contributor um through those novels like whether she like you know whether she likes it or not and i don't think this is a hot take at all but she's a contributor to uh, a rise in in extremely toxic controlling relationships because they you know people who are um, who are trying to find a new mask to hide and they'll do it with anything by the way they'll do it whether 50 shades is there or not but they're looking at that and going, oh, you know what? Now I have a way of being Mr. Gray and I can be abusive to women. And that's, that's you know, it's a contributor. But like, it, you know, there are always going to be people like that in that world. I mean, you know, you got Public Enemy number one, She Who Must Not Be Named, did the Harry Potter series, you know. You got, you got a lot of people out there. And it's, it's important that you also know your own self-worth. Because I don't think, yeah. I don't think she's going to give a shit about what anyone says about her. You know? Oh, listen, yeah, Susan Collins does not need my approbation. She's safe. <laughs> but um, I only toss that out there more in defense of Battle Royale, because yeah, that's a yeah. work that needs to be recognized. Absolutely. You know, and it is, and it Suzanne is so Collins good. doesn't need my help. The, and not that it would mean much even if she did, but you were talking about, uh, as a writer, not allowing you to think that you're full of crap or, or, or letting yourself sink under people's scrutiny. I, I got to tell you, can I tell you about the first time I saw No Sleep Live? That was, um, I, I still have the shirt. I'm actually wearing yeah, it under ahead. this sweater, but um, it, uh, it's, it's under here. It really is. It's the first tour shirt, uh, wholesome. but, uh, but it's, too, it's too cold. I got the window up so the computer doesn't overheat. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, I showed up before <laughs> the crew showed up, and Jessica had already read, at that point, the audiobook for the Forever Show and several of my mm. stories on No Sleep, and obviously she was one of the five who was on the tour. I showed up with my little brother uh, before they did, before anybody did. And when we, when my brother and I saw uh, people queuing up at the door of the Jam and Java, we went out to say hi. And they were like, who the hell are you? I was like, I'm nobody. I'm, my name is Marcus Demanda. I've written a few stories for the show. And everybody started screaming. Everybody started screaming, Paris Green Solution. Everyone, everyone started screaming titles of my story at me. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm like shaking hands. And there, and I'm shaking this one woman's hand, and it's sh- and her hand is trembling in mine like I'm a rock star. <laughs> I felt like fucking Elvis Presley, and and I had just gotten back from asking my sixth period cl- kids to please shut up. I'm trying to talk here. <laughs> that was a that was a real moment when I realized that those of us who write in the dark and in loneliness and have the opportunity Aww. to do something like this, we're 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 getting to people That's in ways that wonderful. we don't fully appreciate. I, I didn't know that until I until I met those people in person, you know, when the uh, when the tour group went on stage and they had a place for me up in the in, in the front. And they asked me and they mentioned my name and I stood up mm. and took a bow and I got a round of applause. I couldn't believe it. 
you know, particularly because they weren't reading any of my stories on the tour. They had stories that were better suited to live stuff. My stuff yeah. is much more like stuff you would read in a book. It's, mm-hmm. it's not like mm-hmm. live performance material. The No Sleep podcast, one of the great gifts they, that they gave to me is, is just Aww. for me to get a chance to see That's so cool. the people who actually have enjoyed my stories. And um, yeah. that, that's a gift that, uh, you know, whatever comes down the line, I'll, I'll never be able to pay back. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, though, to see that work come to life. It is one of those gratifying things yeah. when it happens. It's, um, it's so fucking cool. Let's, let's talk about some of your contributions to the podcast, because we, we, uh, we're an hour in and we've, we've gone on so many different subjects. And it's been so interesting, but I, I think we should get, get stuck in a little bit. So what was American White Hair was um, your first adaptation, season four, episode seven. Yeah. What was it like? Because yeah. this was written uh, before uh-huh. you, you, I guess, uh, was this before you wrote for the podcast? Like you thought yes. you were writing for the podcast? Was this submitted to them? I wrote it in 1991. The um, oh, okay. American White Hair was is a retelling of Edgar Allan Poe's Cask of Amontillado. <laughs> I I did and for Edgar Allan Poe what Susan Collins did <laughs> to Battle Royale. <laughs> yeah, I did, but I was upfront yeah. about it. I mentioned Cask of Amontillado in the story, just just so everyone knew what I was doing and knew that I wasn't just taking credit for it. But I updated it to a '90s college setting instead of in the Edgar Allan Poe story where it's a wine cellar. And it's a couple of uh, these pompous guys getting revenge on a slight. In this case, it's a put-upon college kid who is um, getting back at someone mm. who humiliated him at a party. And, um, and he's doing it through a fake drug deal yeah. that's never going to happen. I wrote that in 1991 and totally forgot about it. And, and, and one of the reasons was because it was a retelling of the cask of Amontillado. I didn't understand public domain back mm-hmm. then. I didn't think I could publish it. Ah. I, I wrote it for fun. Mm. And but then when Jessica was recording the Forever Show for me, uh, which featured a character some podcast listeners will know as Summer, she said, "Do you write anything for adult?" I said, "Well, let me go look." <laughs> and I dug this up and I sent it to mm. her. And and I don't know how know how well you know Jessica. Uh, not uh, very. We worked together a couple times. We're working together more this year. She seems really sweet. She is. She's very very sweet. But she's also very very guarded and very proper. She knows her shit. But mm. when I sent her American white hair, she sent me an email back that read squee with exclamation points. <laughs> and um, Aww, and I was on the cute. podcast two weeks after that with that with nice. that story. And um, and she and she played the one of the two critical roles. And here's a funny thing about American white hair. I deliberately wrote it, even though there's a lot of sexual tension in it, that it could be read both parts as either male or female. Oh, cool. Gen- so you, uh, you removed the gender uh, gender specificities. Yeah, mm. we had, uh, you know, the the one, well, actually, one character was definitely female, but the other character, the one that David read, could have been either male or female. That was the thought. Oh, that's cool. That was the character that I thought Jessica would get. I thought that mm. we would actually have a sexual tension between two female characters in the story, but David, God bless him. First time I'm on the show, I get a, <laughs> I get a narration by David Cummings. <laughs> it's a it is. A thing. And uh and I'm not complaining, but I left it open specifically. I rewrote the 90, 1991 version of that specifically so that if possible, Jessica <laughs> could have read that part. She mm. got the other one. David took the David took mm-hmm. the narration. But that was, was cool. yeah, and, and you you um you were featured a couple times in season five, uh with Supermax James and this Helen remembered it, uh episodes fourteen twenty four. You were featured yeah. a few times in uh season six. 
which I guess like this is the one that I kind of uh, I, I'm going to get poked at to talk about season six, episode four, the Paris Green yes. Solution. And and this is one that I have seen people commenting on in the in the group even now, like people people almost like they think of the halcyon days of uh, of, of early no saving. They think of Marcus Demanda. So, what is the Paris Green Solution? The Paris about? Green Solution is one of the thousand ghost stories. It, it's the mm-hmm. second, but um, but it's a standalone story. You can listen to it by itself. I asked for Peter Lewis specifically to read the part of Doctor Caulfield. Um, <laughs> the narration is Jessica McAvoy. Jessica has been my my friend all the way through mm-hmm. but i wanted i wanted peter lewis i fell in love with peter lewis from when i started listening and i wrote that part with him in mind now your question what is it about it's about a 12 year old mm-hmm. girl in 1912 who is stricken mm-hmm. with polio and uh and she can't get out of bed and her family is in dire straits and her mom is left to care for her even though she has a newborn baby child of her own and dad is not around. And she's so sick of having to care for this child that she has come up with a solution that she's hired two doctors to bring. And the two doctors bring it, and the 12-year-old girl believes that that solution is the cure for her polio. But it's not. The solution is something far more sinister than Mm. that. But the little girl with polio is soon to discover that there are forces lying in wait to help her should she want to rectify the wrongs God that were damn. done to her. You like your revenge stories, huh? Like you're you're a big fan of like letting letting uh, the young people get their revenge and like is, do you think there's like a bit of the rebellion still in you where you, you enjoy the satisfaction? Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. Especially in those early stories. Mm. But they've gone through the whole summer series too. Yeah. You know, that whole idea of uh of you've been wrong. Now listen, I'm not a vindictive person. I really am not. <laughs> uh, but we all have that moment where we think we, we just left a conversation that didn't go the way we wanted to, and, and, and we think, I should have said this. Yeah, it's always the what-ifs. I should have yeah. done that. You know, we all have those fantasies about. And so when I, when I come up with these awfully horrible, bitter stories of revenge, <laughs> they're just fun fantasies, man. I, I think it's the thing, though. Like, it should be a fantasy. Like, um, the, the series I, I finished recently, I'm released, it's my first novella release, actually, yeah. What the idea of the last Sunita was to have difficult conversations in a world where uh, fascism and neoconservatism has really taken the rise now and has really kind of made this this statement on the world and it owns the internet and the way that these conversations happen and prominent figures that would have normally uh, been very quiet about issues and now very loud people you never would have paid attention to and now suddenly the people that everyone pays attention to for their rhetor- their rhetoric. It, it means we have to have difficult conversations with our friends, our family, and people we don't like. And I, I wanted those conversations to be fair and balanced, but I also wanted it to be a bit of a fantasy of like, what if you could just say whatever you want to someone who's a bigot without any kind of con- like yeah. concerns? And, and you, as a writer, you get to play that, play that out. And, and I, you, know, you get readers who are like, oh man, I really want to show this to someone who I think is thinking these things about people. And it's like, well, do it. Like, you never know what it'll be. Like, literature can command certain people's mindsets and you know changes people's lives and it can completely switch someone's perspective up so when you do a revenge fantasy there's a there's there's children or adults who were once children who may have wanted their own revenge fantasies who get to lead lead them vicariously through you yeah i i think those are all very very good points and they're those are frustrations that are alive and rampant in the world there is so much divisiveness and hate right now going on but I take it all when I'm writing as my first obligation is to entertain. 
you know, I think sometimes I, I have a I have a number mm-hmm. of stories that are just flat out ghost stories that are just flat out spook fest stories or whatever. But uh, <laughs> No Sleep has been very kind to me in that they've also just allowed me to let loose with horror fantasy. I love that though. That's my bread and butter. I love that you know, so much. Right. Well, that's but that but that's what that's my bread and butter too. <laughs> yeah. You and I share this. Yeah. This is this is our thing, TJ. Summer is horror fantasy. I don't know anybody who loves summer that would say that series is scary. It's definitely a horror. <laughs> it's it's outer limits yeah. shit. It's it's over the top. Yeah. But it's um it's painted artwork. It, it's it's surreal. It's so far out there. Yeah. But nobody's afraid of what's going to grab them because of it. Yeah, it's a different kind of horror. It's it's you know, I I like to think of the horror that we put in there as existentialism. Yeah. That that is that is if if someone said to me, well, how can how can I be scared of cryptids and folk will be so unbelievable? I'm like, well, you could be scared of dying, and a lot of my characters are terrified <laughs> sure. of dying, and they die anyway. That's like you know the inevitability of, of of death is something that you know I think no matter what age you are, certainly the older you get, it's easier. But no matter what age, are you terrified of it? So I, I think there's a really lovely niche to be carved out there in fantasy horror. And I think if you're good, you can make it still scary. But it is lovely when you get to tell those stories with fantastical elements, and someone's like, yeah, it's still horror. It still passes. It's still mighty War of the Dragons. Uh, the, you yeah. know the story that I wrote <laughs> when I was nine. It's just painted up in the. That's like your core. That's like your little <laughs> core that you, you know, nine-year-old you has, has got, and you've wrapped a yeah. big blanket around there as an adult. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Like, I, I, so I can't remember who said it, but someone says you never stop writing the stories that, that childlike yeah. you wanted to write. And I can't remember who said it for the life of me. But it's such a beautiful thing, because when you're a child, your writing skills are really subpar, and you're like, oh, and then this happens, and then, oh, this happens. And, you, you know, as an adult, you're just like, I remember I wanted to do this story, and then you have the ability now to feed that inner child. The, uh, the thing is, is that what some kids get, and other kids need to be taught, uh, I needed to be taught this, is that you write the thing that happens, and you see it in your head, but the thing you wrote that happens doesn't necessarily create that picture in the reader's head. You, 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 have, you have to yes. evoke that image. You have to spend time to get as much of it as you want them to see, and leave enough of it blank for them to create. You got to craft it. You got to craft it. You got to lead them to the water, but not force their head into drown. Yeah. And you, so, so they went through, so we were saying that the summer series, they went through a lot of them because obviously they, there are, you have quite a few that, uh, that have been on that. And like you said, they've gone through pretty much every single one of them. And I don't know if they did them in order necessarily because you had um, stuff like the house sitters we right. talked about wearing black. Then you had um, the bonfire girls season mm-hmm. seven, the silent treatment, yeah. eating the machine. And you went with Manon Lysette, who we love Manon on this podcast. Such I a love Manon. He's, he's such a he's such a sweet boy. He is a, a great, great, great guy, and uh, very easy to work with. I was doing uh, "Aren't You a We've we've done three stories together. Two made the show. When we did "Aren't You a Sweetheart," a lot of that was plotted out when I was actually with my nephew and Akakwan. Ah. Uh, we were walking the streets catching Pokemon, and I was texting man back and forth. That's awesome. uh, ideas awesome. about that story. Here's the thing about "Aren't You yeah. a Sweetheart." Manon and I had this idea together, and Manon asked me, all right, do you want to write the young female girl, or do you want to write the older man predator? And my first thought was, I want to write the, the young girl, because I'm comfortable with that. That's, I've been writing female characters for the show all this time. And Manon yeah. was like, you don't want to write the horrible, nasty guy? And I said, I said, no, you do that. Yes, sir. Getting two wholesome people, though, like you guys, you two are like really wholesome writers, getting two wholesome people to try and write bad characters. 
Although this is the thing that makes Manon so good. He's he both of you like a very despite a nice uh, personality you guys have. You're very good at writing twisted people when you wanna. I think you know there's there's the darkness within kind people. You well, know? this well, thank you first of all, but I should also say that uh, it was a good choice for Manon to write Trevor because mm. because Manon came up with the supernatural elements that made it really good mm-hmm. on Trevor's part. Writing Mercy on my end. I was just going back to my reference yeah. with kids that I taught at school and, and conflicts that I'd seen with them and, and stuff like that. I was pretty well equipped to deal with that after doing the Devil mm. in the class. And um, that was a marriage made in heaven with Manon and I. That was the story that went through the roof. Well, you went with him again, even though, though right? even, Like, you went with him again in we, season we, we did uh, All Present in 219 shortly after that. Yeah. And, um, and that's creepy if you look at it now, especially with COVID going on. Um, yeah, walk us through that story. That is a story about a plague showing suddenly up at a school, and uh, mm-hmm. and the one person who doesn't get it is trapped in a building with the infected, with the building surrounded by police, and she has to deal with watching all of uh, her children, her students, die around her as she can do nothing and not even get sick. That's so grim. <laughs> That's fucked up, right? <laughs> it's fucked up. What 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 grade are these? You know, like, like these, like, like grade school, high school, uh, middle school, same grade oh, I teach. <laughs> God, that's twisted. That's so twisted. I love it. I love it. That's you ever why, just go to the kids like whenever you discipline. That's why. Uh, that's why it's called all present in two nineteen. Of course, because yeah, she's taking a she's taking a roll call of the of dead at the end, <laughs> and they're all there. By the way, the first classroom I taught in was room 219. Of course it was. Of course it was. When you discipline the kids, do you ever go to them, right, kids, you don't, you don't settle down, I'm going to kill you off at a story next year. No, like, I never tell them before I do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. So, like, before, before we go through the rest of the stories, like, do you, um, so do the kids and their parents know that you write horror? Uh, you know, uh, some of my students know, most of them know that I write for a podcast, mm-hmm. a horror podcast. And two of the books I've written, including both of whom, both of those books have summer in them, are available in the school library. But uh, no shit. Yeah, they really, really like, are. Did your principal like? Was your principal involved in the approval of that? Was uh, the, it just a the, thing? No, like, they went through. So they cool. went through the county approval process. Both of, of those books are young adult books. They don't have any swearing in them. Oh, um, that's so the, uh, cool. The podcast stories were written after those two books. You know, my okay. my thought at the time was because here here's what happened. When I published The Forever Show and mm-hmm. Teeth, Summer is not the star of those books. Mm. She's a secondary character. And one I didn't think mm-hmm. too much of. I, I loved her dearly, but I was focused on my protagonists, and the rest of it is just window dressing. Mm. But among um, my students yeah. and, uh, and the kids at school, I was made their author, their featured author of a given year about, I don't, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And um, and I and I spoke to them all in the oh. auditorium about the writing process, the publication process, and several dozen of them mm. came dressed as characters from those books. And and among the girls, no among the girls, they were all wearing wow. red wigs. They were all wearing tie dye shirts. They were all coming as summer. How that you you must have felt like <laughs> that was it was crazy, as, especially because the main character in the book is a girl named Alexis, who is. Uh-huh. A hero, and and Summer is an antagonist, and she's a force of chaos and something mm-hmm. to be avoided. And all these twelve year old girls fell mm-hmm. in love mm-hmm. with her. And I thought I had awesome. just had this wild hair of a thought: if this works with middle schoolers, mm. can I reproduce this on the podcast? 
and I had no idea if it would yeah. fly or not, but yeah. that's why I wrote wearing black. You know, a funny thing at school happened also where one of the uh, librarians, I, I don't know if this is before or after what I just told you, but she came up to me and, and she said, hey, mm-hmm. Marcus, have you ever heard of the No Sleep podcast before? I said, yeah, I've heard of it. I've, I've heard of it. And she said, there's a writer on the show who has your name. Um, <laughs> so I, I haven't gone out of yeah. my way to advertise it, but yeah, they've gotten the word. But she seriously thought there was just another Marcus Demanda out there. Oh my gosh! So this was um j- just to be clear the the, the incident where you with the auditorium that was like seven years ago you say it's seven or eight years so ago, something like that. Is it wild to you to think that at some point next year you could share audio or or literary space with a new writer, new female writer who's twenty years old? And they were inspired by your story. Like, that could and probably would happen. How? how Liz, cool. oh, God. I would absolutely love for that to happen. I have a, um, I have a student mm-hmm. in class this year. And no, obviously, obviously, I'm not going to, you know, say names and things or, or anything like that. But her mother's aware of the show. She's aware of everything oh, wow. that I do. And she wanted her daughter in my class. Oh, that's uh, cool. She, she doesn't want her daughter reading everything no. that I wrote. <laughs> of course. Uh, but she but, wanted her there to know that it would, you would nurture that. Right. But, but she yeah. wanted uh, her daughter in, in, in my class because I'm yeah. a writer who's found a bit of a way. So, I mean, obviously, that's, that's just amazing. That's wonderful. You know, that's so wonderful. That's that's just like a nice way of giving back as well. Like you know, you get to you get to cultivate next generation. Like I I still teach privately occasionally, and I love giving like consultation one to ones with um like college university students because I love cultivating talent. I think there are people far more talented out there than I am, and, and I love passing on what I know. You know, I don't know a, a hell of a lot, but ten years of doing this gives you enough to sort of be like. This is what you should avoid. This is what works. And, well, and there's something so wonderful about that. And you do know a hell of a lot. I mean, you, you got to keep it in perspective. Listen, I, I got to tell you, the amount of time I spent nowhere, absolutely nowhere. Mm. You're younger yeah. than I am, and you've been doing this regularly at an age when I did not. Um, you know? Although although there was, there was like a good four-year gap of doing nothing. My dry spell was four years. Um, and then, you know... It it happens. It happens to all of us. But it's it for me. It was uh, luck, opportunity, and the the second. Actually, it's almost like a Marcus Demanda moment. The first first time I overlooked it because um, of of unavoidable life things. I was younger. The second time was years later. I was like, I'm gonna look over this again, and boom, just sort of you know jumped in there. But enough about me. There is. That's I have a right. show. I, this is this is not a vanity project. I have enough show for dedicated to me. <laughs> yeah. But like, let's let's go through some of the other stuff as we're as we're winding through. So obviously, you did you did for, uh, All President Two Nineteen. Um, we know about that, and it is a it is a brilliant brilliant story. And you've got a few others. Like, what before we go through the rest of them? What would you say are like the ones that people remember the most? What are the ones that like on the list that we haven't mentioned yet? that people still go to talk to you about or will talk on the group about that really stick out? A couple leap to mind uh, that the group has mentioned, a, a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, among the more recent ones uh, that I, one, didn't expect mm. to make the show, and two, didn't expect to resonate, was Winnie the Walking and Talking. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> seriously. TJ, when I sat down and said to myself, everybody's got a creepy doll story. I'm going to write a creepy doll story. Mm-hmm. I thought, that's too generic. It's uh. never going to make the show. <laughs> but I wanted and here we I are. wanted a creepy doll story. <laughs> and uh, so I freaking wrote one. 
it's just season 13 episode three for those <laughs> yeah. track uh we will put a, a, a guide in the description the, but yeah that so, that story gosh, uh that, that story all i did was <laughs> i looked up i googled creepy dolls and then i found a youtube of a really creepy doll who is called winnie the walking and talking doll the bitch is real i'm gonna google, I'm gonna google that while um, you're talking i want to see uh, the shit it's not worth it unless you play the audio man so go to it later um uh, no, you okay, gotta get okay. the audio on it I saw the picture. That right. was what I wanted to look at, and that is horrible. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is that is nightmare. And, and it the, made what the I want cover to the art too, oh, which yeah, I yeah. almost never get. Um, I'm usually lost to construction hats for Man in Lysette. But <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Winnie oh, made he'll the cover that. because I sent the YouTube video to Olivia. It's a video of this walking and talking doll from the '50s, and she sings mm-hmm. in the voice of an old lady, and it's a little girl, and it was just horrific. So anyway, Ugh. I had very little to do with it. It was already there, and I just came up with a backstory for it and made some Star Wars action figures come to life and go batshit crazy. What do you know? People loved it. <laughs> Strange how that so, works. Like you know, right. it, it, it's interesting. And yeah, I think your highest amount of features, to my knowledge, is season nine. You were on there a lot, yeah. and you also sh- suddenly shocking as well. The Halloween stuff, I think, is also. But the, the one that um, really stuck out to me because I think I've heard this. And is, is, there's nothing in Forest yeah. Glen National Park uh-huh. with J.J. Cheeseman. That one, I something is telling me in my little brain, you know, when you have like a little connector, I'm like, mm, that sounds familiar. And I'm guessing, was this like sort of in response to, you know, because there's so many disappearances in the national parks and it, the missing 411 and stuff like that. Well, this is the second of a, of a two-part series that J.J. Okay. wrote. And the first one he wrote by himself. And the second one, he just had me write the bookends too. So that's really his. <laughs> that that's really okay. really his. Uh, the first one was there's something in mm. Forest Glen National Park, and and then the second one he gave me ideas that helped me write Confessor to the Dead, and which um, was previously, and that's yeah. also one of yeah. the Thousand Ghost Stories. But I in fact, but but for there's mm. nothing in um, Forest Glen National Park. I, I remember I specifically I wrote David and I said this is gratis, man. Give JJ the check because it was his story. And it's a tremendous story, but he did give me the beginning yeah. and the end of it, and oh, and he was sweet. very happy with what I did there. So, oh, that's sweet. And um, you did um, you had some really interesting ones like confessing mm-hmm. to the dead, but you also had to listen to the yeah. ground scream, the feast of Saint Christopher's, and the hour of our death. There was a lot of like to me, like looking at like the way your work sort of shifts and changes because obviously you were doing more yeah. original works by these points now, and and when we separate from the thousand ghosts. Were you tapping into anything in particular that was inspiring at the time? Was it like more of a, a what was there at the, at the moment in, in your life or were there general fears you were trying to evoke? Well, here, here's the thing. Like you mentioned, I listened to the ground scream. I, I have had very limited success on Reddit, although the Paris Green Solution lit up hard there. Apart mm-hmm. from that, uh, and, um, and with Man and uh, Aren't You a Sweetheart, I, I haven't had a lot of luck there. I've always mm-hmm. been in love with Reddit titles. I listened to yeah. the ground scream. Sounded like something that might. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real Reddit title, yeah, and I love it. I'm a big fan of the clickbait. Like, I, I mean, me and Will grew, came up in a time before that, and then you know we started doing the the more faux titles, like like um, she found her way into our home and uh, stuff like that. But then, uh, and I, one of my originals was I don't sleep anymore. But right. like, um, you know, now I, I mean, don't get me wrong, the titles that we use on there now would never work anywhere in a book or in podcasting. But you do it to get the attention. So, yeah, it's like Manon told me the title "Aren't You a Sweetheart" would no. never fly on Reddit. It did. It did. Really? But it did. Yeah, God damn. <laughs> and I give Manon all the credit in the world. 
because Manon knows Reddit up mm. and down. I mm-hmm. don't doubt him, but I said, Manon, please let us have this title, please. For all the things that he brought to that story, and he brought Trevor. So you can't, yeah. you, uh, I'm not I'm not staking claim where it doesn't belong. But that title was mine. <laughs> God damn. Well, you know what, props, because yeah, that did 2,000 plus upvotes. Uh, like if you, and Grind, and this was this was like, uh, what, four four years ago, give or take? Something like that, yeah. Right, my, my modern my modern ass is thinking of like the last two years where I think it's it's gone so far in the clickbait world now that it's really rare for those to work. But I'm I'm glad it did because like you know I uh, the the last story I put up there a couple weeks ago was the the devil you know and it did did it right did like a thousand but like you know you're taking a risk when you're doing that. and if you know I always say to people if you love your story and you really want to succeed, then you might have to deal with deal with the devil and give it a really shitty clickbait title if that means it'll do better. Just do it, you know. You know, you were at, mm. you were asking about stories that get mentioned on the No mm-hmm. Sleep Facebook group and stuff. One of them was a Reddit story of, of mine that went nowhere, and and it was a big, big success on the show. Thank God for the listeners mm. of the No Sleep podcast, Supermax mm. Dreams. That's a title that's not going to make it on Reddit. <laughs> I've never been good at titles yeah. on Reddit, but that particular story, another revenge story. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's a pattern the, here. If you haven't experienced Supermax Dreams, I don't want to spoil it for you. But that's probably the most satisfying revenge at the end of anything I've ever done. Um, dude, like that's 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 like one that's gonna go on me on my list tonight. Like I'm a big fan of dream states. I think it doesn't get explored enough. And I think I think my logic is that one of my favorite dream stories ever is Hypnos by H.P. Lovecraft. I think that is the literally the number one dream story I've ever read. It's just so horrifying and beautiful. Well, what by Lovecraft isn't, but but I <laughs> yeah. but I'm not going to say anything about Supermax Dreams. Anybody anybody no, no, who's listening to this right now, who's heard the story, is is laughing right now because the story actually has <laughs> nothing to do about dreams. But it, but the title is justified. You'll see. I, I like that. I, I think I think in my mind, not having heard it, I I just think of like a prison where like dreams are just locked up, and so I'm just like, oh, I love dream stories. Like that's that's a that's a terrible habit, but. <laughs> It's, it's interpretation on title alone but as as you you were in suddenly shocking as well um you did the did the eighth volume for season 10 mm-hmm. you were father of mercies and you were on the seventh anniversary special which is a wonderful wonderful sort of thing to have like where you know they they bring in you know some of the most beloved and well-known authors and you did baby turn seven yes on, on the seventh anniversary show and and um i'm going to make a confession here mm-hmm. um i had the title first i said I want a title that's going to get me on there. Sure, um, sure. And it was the seventh anniversary, so I thought Baby Turned Seven, and then I said, "Okay, great. What goes with that?" And and it's one of the even <laughs> on Suddenly Shocking, that's one of the shortest stories there. It's a really, really quick mm. kiss in the dark, but it's it's got my favorite punchline mm-hmm. ever that I've done. Uh, the it's it a mother. the The story is, um, and um, and the mom has a child and the child was born with some irregularities that are unspecified Mm -hmm. and the doctors have Mm -hmm. given her advice as to not to complete the pregnancy early on or what to do shortly after but she insists on Mm. keeping her child and she insists on raising her child herself Mm -hmm. even though her husband leaves her and then um at the end of the story she sends her child off to school uh, in spite of all the warnings of being hounded by the media and this and that. And the punchline of the story is, at the end, she says, I just hope her second head doesn't scream during class. <laughs> oh, that is so grim. So grim. Oh, boy. 
Yeah, bravo, bravo. Like the curtain reveal moment is always a beautiful thing. It's very, very R.L. Stein-esque in some respects, like how you can kind of get away with that. One of the great things is that I bring these stories on my phone mm. with a speaker over to my mother. Oh. And, I pl- and I play them for her. Oh, and, uh, that's lovely. Oh, uh, if you're going to listen to Supermax Dreams tonight, I have mm-hmm. to tell you this story. I, I brought the um, phone and the speaker over to my mom to play Supermax mm. Dreams for my mother. And, uh, and we're mm-hmm. sitting there having her Italian food. She's a little Italian lady in her 70s. And, uh, and she listens to it. And at the end, she says, that was a very good story, Marcus. I enjoyed that quite a lot. But why do you make that nice girl say such horrible things? Oh, bless. That is the, that is the most mom thing ever. Like she, yeah, that's, that's very yeah. 70s sensibility. That's so cute though. And, and is she, does she, is she, was she, was she always been like been a fan of your work? Like uh, she's as you always grew as a writer? It, yeah. I told Jessica that story too, cause Aww. she plays uh, the pivotal part in that. And she said, I need that on a t-shirt. So mm. I brought that t-shirt to her as a present on the first tour. Um, <laughs> Mother oh, wants to know lovely. why do you make the nice girls say so such cr- the terrible things for Jessica though. So that's 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 fucking great. Recently, um, you were on uh, season fifteen uh, with Hide the Knives, episode ten. So yeah, you you've um, you've uh-huh. been in almost every. I think you've been in every single season uh, since uh, season season four, four, which is insane. What what is it like now? You're you're you know you're writing. You've been writing for this podcast regularly, and as we said at the beginning, horror sensibilities have changed now. Are you changing with them, or are you sticking to your guns? Are you tweaking in any way when you're delivering your horror? I'm tr- I'm trying to grow as a writer. Always, I I learn things from my editor at Evernight. I learn things mm. uh, by working uh, with the show with Olivia. When I write summer, Jessica's now read fourteen s- summer stories, each of them at an average of just under an hour in length. Not to mention Teeth, plus The Forever Show as audiobooks. Actually, The Forever Show as an audiobook. Um, mm. And that's nine hours long. So I go to Jessica and I say, does this sound like summer? Mm. And, um, you know, when I, when I do that, I listen mm. to people. But I don't consciously, you know, lick my finger, hold it up into the mm. wind and say, where is it blowing? I have to love <laughs> it. Um, yeah. I tell my students, be your own favorite writer. Uh, yes. Write the story you want to read. And, yes. uh, and, and that's what I do. If I hit a point where what I want to read is not what everyone else wants to read, I got a day job. And, and I will follow publishers' dictates yeah. because there's a, there, there's a professional aspect to this. But at the same time, I've got to love it. And the number one thing to me is characters. Even with despicable characters, characters that people love to hate, they still have to love to hate them. I trust you're enjoying our table reading with the man behind the summer series, Marcus Demando. Good. Before we continue on, I want to clue you in on next week's guest of the table read and what the mythos is doing for Women's History Month in February. Next week, I'll be sitting down with perennial no-sleep writer and frequent Fright Fest instigator N.M. Brown. We've got a lot of stories to cover and I know you'll be intrigued by what comes up. And during Women's History Month, we'll be looking at two highly influential female writers from the genre that broke ground in the best of ways. First, I'll be teaming up once more with Gemma Moore to cover Charlotte Perkins Gilman on February 3rd, and then on February 20th, I'll be working with our aforementioned N.M. Brown to bring you the life story and ethos of the creator of the haunted house concept, Shirley Jackson. Sign up to the Writer's Mythos on all podcast platforms, and follow us on Twitter at Writer's Mythos for more information. And with that, we dim the lights and lift the veil to rejoin Marcus one last time. 
you have to have something to them yeah yeah they can't just be one dimensional like oh i'm a bad person i kick puppies it's like why do you kick puppies no you know to it everybody knows why summer kicks puppies um (laughs) (laughs) everybody knows because they've been following her from age 12 to well let me put it this way uh, summer, uh, the summer saga expands from 1950 to 1988. In podcasts, it goes only up to 1968 to this point. But okay, it, but if you take it through the two books, it goes up to 88. And if you and if wow, you, so, so you're saying this woman grows? Yeah, it, we we get a whole life because that's the great and terrible secret that the summer haters have not come to accept, and that's simply this: summer <laughs> never loses. That's the first time I've said that in a public forum, but I've whispered in the ears of my friends for years. So that's an exclusive you for go. you. Summer never loses. Well, hopefully people will hear that then. I, I, you know, Summer never loses. Might make that the title of the episode. Just table read. Won't put Marcus Demando, but Summer never loses. Oh, that's so cool. So I guess like uh, oh, sure. as, we, as we round this off, um, I'm going to give you the same sort of um, existential questions I give a lot of my writers. What scares you? You. What scares Marcus Demando? Oh, God. Uh, well, I'll give you a few. Because uh, uh, I heard you ask Rona this. And, um, and I'm just mm. going to uh, give the same level of honesty and give you real, honest-to-God fears of mine. Uh, highway sure. driving. I will, uh, mm-hmm. I will go well out of my way to stay on local roads. I cannot stand mm-hmm. bolting down at 60 miles an hour in a wide-open space. I am also terribly mm. acrophobic. You know, I wasn't a tree fork kid as a child. If God had meant us to fly, he would have mm. given us wings. I am, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid of uh, failure. You know, uh-huh. I am, um, big, big, I've big always, degree. I've always just uh, been a or, or big advocate of everyone should just make everyone else feel safe. You know, I avoid conflict whenever necessary. I, I mm-hmm. don't think I'm a great big pussy. I'll stand up for what I believe in. But I really wish, especially in light of what <laughs> sure, we see in sure. the world these days, that we could just recognize that we're all in this together. It scares me when we're not. And um, I've mm-hmm. spent a whole hell of a lot of time yeah. uh, cooped up in this apartment yeah. since last March. And I am facing teaching back in the classroom in mm-hmm. January, even as I, in my heart, believe it is too soon. It, yeah, it, it legitimately is too soon. And, I, and, I, and I, I'll just segue in. I, I wish... I wish this was not a political issue because a virus is not a political issue. I, I'm I not really trying to make it one. Leaves would see that. No, no, no. I agree. No, but I agree. I'm for your benefit as a teacher myself. If I was still teaching, you know, because my country's done the same thing. They turn it into some kind of like angle. It's like it's nothing to do with what you believe in. It's to do with the safety of our students and our teachers. And like, it's it's. I I do think it's too soon for everyone. I, I you know I. It, it it frightens me, and I feel bad for my fellow teachers that they have to kind of go in when they're not comfortable. But, uh, you know, one of the things is, even with the kids, with the kids, one of the things that people are losing sight of is mm. they're, they're saying the kids aren't getting sick. First, first of all, I'm not necessarily buying <laughs> that. There have been stories to the contrary. But secondly, that doesn't mean exactly. it's okay to send them in and turn them into farmers asynchronous of, of oh, the herd immunity they, bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where, where they're asymptomatic, but they can still pass yeah, it on 
to everybody else. And a lot of my colleagues are way up in age there. And mm-hmm. uh, you it's, know, it, but- it, the risk is higher. Like, well, this, you know, we've got a strain here. I'm sure you've heard about it where yeah. it is, it is, and you know, it's, it's passing over much, much quicker. Our numbers are just exploding. I didn't see my family for Christmas or New Year's, which is fine. I'm, you know, you, you do what you got to do, Me right? Neither. I miss my 50th birthday, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving. It's fucking horrible. All of that. All of that. At some point, you just got to suck it up. And Yeah, that, that's exactly and, it. You've got to just and, get on with it. And beat the pandemic. And this is why, you know, and I see anti-maskers and uh, and anti, anti-lockdown people, like, putting their videos out because they don't get served at Target. And it's like, fuck off. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the one that they can't wear a bit of fabric over their goddamn face. Like, give me a break. But but the, the thing with... The numbers that we see is that children, um, young people in general, are a huge, huge um, carrier and transmitter of this virus. They're the ones that are passing it on and getting it to the families. And it's not that, you know, you can't blame kids. It's not their fault. It's the school structure. If you have small fucking narrow corridors and hundreds, if not thousands of students, of course they can't socially distance. How can they? And so, like, the idea that... And and also, they're 11 and 12. Yeah, exactly. They're 11 and 12. Tell them to wear a mask for seven hours. See how that works for you. Yeah, it's it's not um, going to happen again. I I I, I don't want to become political. It's not. I think the virus, your your safety and the safety of things, it should never be political. It should be about yeah. safety. I I think people who are Republican or Democrat or either should be able to recognize that a virus doesn't care about borders or alignments or anything. It is a virus. It will attack indiscriminately. And all we can do as conscious adults, educated yeah. adults, is be safe. And to be safe means social distancing, wearing a mask, washing your hands. You can't do that in closed environments, no matter where you are in the world. If every if offices are working from home, schools absolutely should too. I think that's that's not political. Well, we were just talking about you know fears and 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 mm-hmm. so you know that came up in my mind. It's one I'm facing down imminently, and and I'm going to end up having to do whatever you know they say. But if I if I had just yeah. uh, just one wish, as far as that goes for anybody, it would only be look to the countries mm. that have had it and don't now, whoever they may be. Yeah, New Zealand. And, um, yeah. and take that model and ask, mm. is it adaptable? Because uh, that to me is not political, it's common sense. I 100% agree. And, you know, there are, there's a reason there are places in the world that got to celebrate New Year's with crowds and with families, and there are places that didn't. Yeah. And you, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why. But it's it's very interesting, like the fears that we, you know, we have, sometimes they're endemic, sometimes they are things that are really, really deep rooted, and sometimes they're about the world around us. And is there, are there characters that like you have, or stories you've written about where you're really imparting your fear, like you're putting, you're pouring all of that in there, like your emotional well, state? Yeah, I, I have one. Um, okay. the, uh, but for the fear of highway driving, I haven't done it yet. I, I, th- okay. I, I will. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got to do your Christine, yeah. man. You got to do your Christine. And uh, for, the, for the fear of, Heights, I haven't done it yet, and I will, but I did write a story called After the Curtain Called. Oh, okay. And, this is and, recent, uh, I believe, as well, right? Uh, I think in season 10. The, yes, uh, it, uh, yes, yes. Uh, it was um, episode four. I wrote that coming home from the hospital without the use of my left hand. I had had a uh, oh, wow. spinal cord infarction. I had been put through an MRI machine in uh, the course of mm. a few weeks, 15 times. And... Um, I wasn't aware of my claustrophobia until uh, that experience, and and I and I oh, was yeah, and I was scary. legit. Yeah. <laughs> I was legit fucked up. One night I woke up, and everything mm. on the left side of my body stopped working. And my 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 father 
had two strokes prior to his death. So I thought this oh was it God. for me. Uh, that wasn't what it was. It was a nervous sure, sure. Uh, system inflammation. And it took a while for the doctors to figure that out. And they're still not entirely sure that's what it was. They tell me now that they'd have to go in and operate to know for sure. But there's a 10% chance that I wouldn't come out of it. So I told him, I said, you may be dying to know what's going on, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> yeah, 10% chance yeah, is, is too high, right? Uh, but anyway, you know I, mean? I was in that uh, MRI machine so many times and medicated that I was hearing some mm. shit that wasn't there. So I decided to come up with a haunted MRI story. Mm. And that was what gave rise to After the Curtain <laughs> Called. Also, that story has, for close listeners, a very brief, quick mention of summer in the deep, deep background. Yeah, that if you're if you're not attentive or if you are unfamiliar, you'll ah. miss it. But uh, I never write a story without sneaking in a reference to at least one other story. No kidding. Oh, that's cool. I love shared universe. Yeah. That's what that's my bread and butter. Like I love that. What is now we're in 2021, and I and I know I so. there is a mantra of trying to get the past year behind us, and I do think this year is going to be better, but difficult. But I think it will be better. What do you what do you want to do, uh, or what have you got planned uh, in 2020? What's Marcus Demanda going to be doing? Well, for one thing, I hope to get another summer story on the show. Summer uh, mm -hmm. will not be in this current season. Online teaching has taken my full attention, but I know what the next summer story is, sure. and she's got a hell of a lot of piss and vinegar left in her. So I hope to bring her back. <laughs> I hope to have my usual goal for no sleep is that if Olivia is willing, if the audience is receptive. To have a summer story plus two or three others that are totally unrelated and totally new. I don't want to just be the summer guy. Mm. So that's what I've got uh, hopefully planned for that. I've also got another short story collection coming. I don't know what I'm going to call it yet, and it's not quite there. I've got to, mm. got to add to the list before it's significant enough to come out. And I've got some stuff out to agents and to, and to publishers, mm. uh, always hoping. I get up at four in the morning every single day. Right now I'm up two hours past my bedtime, even though it's much mm. later where you are. Um, ah, yeah, the nearly three. But you know what? Like we we have very similar work ethics. I got up for those who don't know. Um, it was New Year's. It's it's a uh, New Year's Day. Um, I was up for twenty eight hours, and then I went to bed <laughs> for about six, and then I woke up at about half past twelve to do this interview. And it's it's oh, it's work, God. but it's work thank though. Thank like you for doing that. Oh no, but it's fine. But it's, I think it like you know, I'm not an early riser. What I am is I'm just someone who sleeps as much as they can, and then works as much as they can before they like I, I deal in like stream absolutes. So I completely get that. Uh, you know, I, I, I relate to that. The reason I get up before is because I need to do my writing before I sure. teach. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the teaching day, I'm exhausted. There's nothing. Yeah, left. of course. There's no energy left. Yeah. No matter whether you're on Zoom or not. Like when you're talking all the time and you're constantly, yep. you know, directing attention to different, different, um, different subject matters and different classes. Yeah. That's exhausting. That's, that's so, fucking exhausting. Yeah. So, I, you know, and also, you know, the morning brain is just better suited for writing for me. Uh, writing goes mm. better with coffee than with beer, in my experience. <laughs> but, um, you know, so sure. I've always got something cooking. I, I don't want to say too much, too early about what all it is. Mm. Hopefully more no sleep. I know that uh, Olivia and uh, and the crew, they've always been there for me when I've come back to them. And uh, they don't say yes to everything. But uh, but the, but they've, they've always got a listening ear, which I appreciate. <laughs> and I don't want, uh, you know, and I'm always, this is terrible. But I'm always afraid that if I go away for oh, too wonderful. long, uh, the people will forget. <laughs> that's, a, that's a natural fear. That is, honestly, I think everyone has that concern. I don't blame you yeah, at all. So. Um, but I don't think they'll ever forget Marcus Demanda. And your last collection um, is not even a year, uh, but not even two years uh -huh. old yet, Impressions of Death. 
Um, and that's that. So you want to create a sequel to that, which is 360 plus pages of pure Marcus Demanda short stories. Oh, listen, see. can I just say one thing about one yeah. thing in that in that collection? Yeah. The last thing in that collection is a ghost story based on the first No Sleep podcast tour. And Jessica, Peter, Nicole, David, uh, David Alt, all of them agreed. Brandon Boone all agreed that I could use their names in it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. There is an 80 page fictionalized story based on real details from the tour that they gave me <laughs> um, no way. about the first time they went on tour live. And um, that's the centerpiece of, uh, of that collection. And uh, of them all, I, I got a hell of a lot of feedback from Jessica McAvoy, but oddly enough, the one who gave me the most was David Alt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He gave me some fucking dirt, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I got, he is a delight. I got some shit that he said, I'm going to tell you this, but don't put it in the story. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to be faithful to that and not let any of it out. But Oh, bless. He's, he's a delight. I love David. I love both the Davids, of course. I hope the new year goes well for you. Um, and I, I hope to have you on at the end of the year. It's been such a pleasure. And I didn't get to mention your cat Shazam, but I hope, I hope, hope the cat's okay. Uh, he's fine. I'm not sure where he is right now. He's not used to me being up, so he's probably in the bedroom wondering where the hell I'm at. I am. Oh, that's cute. Hopefully, um, at the end of the year, we can uh, we can have another another call and um, we can kind of reflect on, on some of the, the wonderful things. And it's been so cool. And where can people find you, Marcus? Where's the best place people to go and check you out? Well, they can find me very easily on Facebook. I've got an author page there as well as my personal page. And anybody who reads my stuff or wants to be friends is welcome to both. I don't turn people away as long as uh, as long as they've got something to say and don't just blindly send me friend requests. You know, I've got Twitter yeah. at Marcus Demanda. Uh, I don't very often go to Instagram or all that other stuff. I'm a 50 year old man. One of my, I'm gonna I'm gonna be on Facebook. That's where you're gonna find me. Um, <laughs> Facebook and Twitter. That's pretty Facebook much it. Facebook and Twitter. But um, please, uh, by all means, find me on Amazon. <laughs> of course, we will link his summer series and the collection in the description below, and um, you'll be able to find all of them there. Marcus, thank you so, so much for, for taking the time out today. First interview of the new year. Couldn't have asked for a better, a better guest. Oh, thank you. I do hope that I have done your show justice, sir. You absolutely have. And for those of you at home, before we finish off, of course, we will end with another strange bit of information about 2020. The United States Department of Defense officially released three short videos showing unidentified aerial phenomena. In a statement dated April 27th, the Department of Defense said the videos were taken by Navy pilots in 2004, 2005, and had been circulating on the internet since 2007 and 2017. No one knows what they are, and the Department of Defense has refused to comment on them. But just when you know that you think you know everything about UFOs in the night sky, the government decides it's going to step in and change that up for you. Folks, this has been The Table Read. He's been Marcus Demanda. I have been TJ Lee, and I will see you next time. I hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Table Read. Our guest today was Marcus Demanda, and you can find out more about Marcus at his Facebook page, and a list of his published works are linked below. Follow Marcus on Twitter at Marcus Demanda, and be sure to check out his extensive appearances on the No Sleep Podcast. If you didn't already know about the summer series, well, now is as good a time as any to check it out. Theme music by Brandon Boone. Follow Brandon on Twitter at Wondrous Sound. Logo by Paddy Byrne. Check out more of his work at paddydesigns.co.uk. Questions? Suggestions? Check us out on Twitter at the Table Read Pod for trivia and upcoming info on our next guests. Special thanks to Olivia White. Without her, none of this would be possible. 
This show was hosted and created by me, TJ Lee, and produced by David Cummings and TJ Lee in partnership with the No Sleep Podcast, the award-winning premier audio horror experience releasing every Sunday. You can follow me on Twitter at TJ Lee, or if you want to see some of my work, check out tjlee.com or my subreddit r slash TJ Lee, where I tend to frequent. I have another show, providing bi-weekly deep dives into the biggest writers of days gone by and the legends of today. From H.P. Lovecraft to Stephen King to Angela Carter, we've got you covered. Find out more by following us on Twitter at Writers Mythos. We're sure you'll enjoy what we have on offer. The Writers Mythos, every other Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Incorporated, all rights reserved. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Incorporated. And with that, the reading is over and the veil is closed for now. But we'll be back next week with a new guest, new frightful secrets to be unearthed, and someone fresh will step up for a table read. Who knows what we'll find out.